Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, our exploration will involve DMT, N-N-dimethyltryptamine, probably the most powerful psychedelic known. My guest is Dr. David Luke, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Greenwich in England. He is also the author of over a hundred academic papers, largely related to psychedelic drugs and exceptional human experience. He is a past president of the Parapsychological Association, and he is the editor of an exciting new book called DMT Dialogues, Encounters with the Spirit Molecule. He is also author of Other Worlds, Psychedelics and Exceptional Human Experience, and he is a co-author of a volume called Talking with the Spirits, Ethnographies from Between the Worlds. This is once again a Skype interview, and I am now going to switch over to the Skype video. So, welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I know we're having this Skype uh, conversation across uh, two continents, but uh, you've devoted much of your professional career to studying psychedelics. That's a topic of great interest to me, but I will confess I have never used DMT. I've used many psychedelics, but I've heard so much about DMT, and I'm, I'm very eager to talk to you about it, especially because you're not only a researcher, but an experiencer as well. So, Jeff, yeah, thank you for inviting me onto the show. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about uh, DMT from both a, a perspective of a, a scientist and a, and a psychonaut. Let, let's start with what we know about the effects of uh, DMT physiologically. I know that it's found in almost every plant and animal. Yeah, it's extraordinarily well distributed in nature. Um, as far as we're aware, it's in all mammals, uh, it's in a very wide selection of plants. Some researchers believe possibly in all plants at very trace levels. Um, we don't find it curiously in insects or in fungus, though. Mm. Uh, but fungus have their own version, which is psilocybin, which is 4-hydroxy-DMT, a kind of slight variation, the kind mm -hmm. of the fungal variety. And it's also uh, the active ingredient, I believe, in ayahuasca. So we believe uh, it's the, it's a little bit of uh, confusion about that because uh, the mal inhibitors that are, are mixed with uh, the DMT containing plants to make the DMT active in the brain are also psychoactive. And in some ayahuasca brews, there is no DMT, but DMT seems to be probably the most important ingredient within ayahuasca. Yeah. When I first came to California back in 1969, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I moved in with a couple of hippies who told me that they had been married a couple of years earlier, and they both took DMT for their wedding ceremony. And 
at, at that time, it was described as uh, far and away the most powerful psychedelic, but also the, the trips are very brief. They don't last, I don't know, a half hour or so. Oh, even less. I mean, maybe only 10 minutes in, in the kind of the the intense kind of other world experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's certainly one way to get married. And uh, if you want to do it briefly without making all your wedding guests wait for you to come and land, that would seem to be the, the ideal mm -hmm. substance for mm -hmm. it. But the most striking reports uh, regarding DMT have to do with the uh, encounters. I believe 50% uh, of experiencers report with uh, what appear to be external psychic entities. Yes, definitely. I mean, it is an extraordinary phenomenon. Um, from Rick Strassman's research, where he injected a lot of volunteers, the, the prevalence rate was about 50%. Uh, in my own research, we've been getting closer to 100% of uh, people reporting encounter experiences at, very, at high doses. Uh, and it's quite an extraordinary thing that in the moment these encounters seem to be extremely real and mm -hmm. people ascribe them uh, sentience and, and and usually have very little doubt about their their kind of external otherness mm -hmm. um, although on occasion people do uh, real uh, you know interpret it as a projection of, of them of their own inner psychology but most often is is presented as this kind of external being which is extraordinary well, I, that raises some very deep ontological questions, me metaphysical questions about the reality of uh, spiritual beings. I know uh, one of the things you've pointed out in uh, your book, Other Worlds, is is that if, if you look at ancient iconography uh, from the Buddhist tradition and, and other uh, ancient traditions, uh, spiritual beings are depicted uh, in a manner very similar to the way uh, modern artists have portrayed their visions under DMT. Yes, quite. I mean, a lot of this kind of ancient iconography seems to repeat itself uh, in, in the psychedelic visionary state. And you're quite right, it throws up all manner of ontological questions about the, the nature of these beings, the nature of ourselves, the nature of reality. Uh, I mean, if we accept them at face value, for indeed they, they seem more real than perhaps this real, um, that, that really does kind of uh, put a big question mark next to the, the notion of spirits or other beings, aliens, angels, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and it does pose it a an extremely interesting question for us and how do we even go about beginning to assess the validity of, of the claim that these things are in some sense uh, kind of independent sentient entities uh, it's not an easy question to ask empirically no, it's it's a deep problem for anybody interested in addressing the scientific question but perhaps another way to uh, look at it is is to ask what is it that distinguishes DMT from other psychedelics yeah i mean it's it's endogenous right so it's uh, unlike a, the, most of the psychedelics it's naturally occurring in the human body uh, so it, it's 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 a kind of known part of our physiology. We don't know what the actual function of it or even where it's made precisely, but the fact that it's within us means that it, it has a possibility of explaining all manner of spontaneous, mystical, paranormal, transpersonal-like experiences uh, because it could be uh, simply 
certainly the DMT is involved in the, the neurophysiology of the process in having these experiences. Now that throws up all manner of, of, of conundrums in itself. Uh, mm. Uh, you could take a kind of neurotheological approach and say, well, you know, there's a, there's come some biochemistry involved, for, so we can easily explain away these mystical transpersonal experiences. Or you could take a more of a, a theoneurological approach and say, well, uh, the, the biochemistry is just part of the process of having these experiences, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily explain them away at all. Uh, but uh, you know, embedded within the very name uh, ascribed to it by uh, Rick Strassman, you know the spirit molecule you have the fusion of the, these two uh juxtaposing uh concepts you know something totally material and scientific like a molecule and and something completely abstract and metaphysical the the spirit and uh it, it certainly does bring these two two worlds together mm-hmm. um and um leaves everybody scratching their head yeah. are there harmful side effects uh, that have been observed uh, in terms of the side effects, not particularly. I mean, unless you consider total shock and awe, uh, you know, ontological shock is is a very real side effect. Uh, it's it's relatively safe uh, as as far as psychedelics go, if it's used in you know in a clinical setting uh, and a known dosage and all the rest of it. Uh, as far as we know, no one's ever overdosed or died from the use of DMT uh, in its pure form. Um, I think occasionally people may have difficult psychological experiences if, if they're not particularly well prepared uh, or even they may have a propensity to have a, a difficult psychological experience perhaps if they have any underlying psychological conditions like psychosis. But the, 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 the known side effects physiologically are, are, are extremely limited uh, and it's thought to be relatively safe and benign on that level and psychologically too we don't have much data to suggest that people have have developed psychosis from its use for instance Mm -hmm. so i know uh, lsd for example has been used therapeutically Uh, uh, i believe good results have been reported in treating alcoholism uh is anyone using dmt in a therapeutic context that's an interesting question um and you're right about LSD. You know, there's a recent meta-analysis showing that it, it seems to be somewhat successful in treating alcoholism. DMT hasn't really been used in, in clinical scientific context as yet uh, in, in that realm uh, for tr- treating psychogenic disorders. Um, although there is lots of research going on with ayahuasca, of course, which contains DMT. Uh, um, preliminary results showing that it's it's has uh, potential for treating depression, anxiety and addictions and possibly a whole raft of other disorders. Pure DMT, however, hasn't really received that kind of attention, although anecdotally there's a kind of body of, of reports to people um, benefiting from its youth, even though it's, it's a very, very short experience. Yeah. Uh, I've encountered many people who've actually treated their addictions with it, so particularly heroin and crack users. Uh, of reporting, you know, taking one pipe, giving mm. up on the spot, and then actually just kind of going back to it, maybe once a month or something, just to to remind themselves. Uh, but so, but not really in an addictive way, but rather in a just a uh, just kind of keeping themselves on on the wagon, so to speak. Well, so it, it would seem as if DMT is somehow related to uh, 
non-attachment, especially uh, regarding addictions, which can be quite serious. Yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, and addictions are a kind of complex confluence of uh, physiological and psychological factors, but uh, I'd say there are some astonishing kind of psychological experiences to be had from, uh, you know, engaging with something like DMT and it and it could give rise to non-attachment-like experiences, which is useful. I think it's also, uh, there is some kind of revelatory component in it. Uh, You know, people may have a mystical experience in a very brief moment of time where they could have been perhaps atheists before, and uh, I think that can really shake people up in in their foundations and, um, you know, seek to improve their, their lot and their their way in life. In other words, uh, even though the experience is only maybe 10 minutes, you're not the same person afterwards that you were uh, beforehand. No, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you you are the same person. You you know, there isn't much changes. You, You don't really even have a hangover or any kind of ongoing physiological effects. And yet the experience can be so uh, awe-inspiring that, you know, it, it, it leaves a, you know, a permanent mark in one's mind. You know, it, it's, it often can be one of those peak experiences. Um, there's little data being collected on that, in fact. I mean, we have evidence from, you know, the use of psilocybin in controlled settings and shown that it can induce a profound, lifelong, mystical experience in, in somebody um you know, in about two thirds of the sample, we don't have that kind of data for DMT. But I would, I would imagine we're probably expecting something very similar mm-hmm. in terms of its kind of intensity and its profundity. Yeah. It's it, it it's quite off the scale. Uh, I mean, for instance, we ask our participants when they're uh, smoking or vaporizing or injecting DMT to um, to give us on a scale of one to ten how intense the experience is while they're having the. Ex- experience we ask them periodically and uh sometimes they can't answer uh but usually when they do answer the very first answer is nearly always 10 uh and we say if you can speak it's not 10 you know 10 is reserved for when you're so dissociated you can't speak mm-hmm. uh sometimes people even say 11 you know it's 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 just so intense and different and profound it it it's it's really unscalable and often people will just laugh at the question it's like it becomes somewhat meaningless when you're in the depth of that state i, I see well and you yourself have been in those states and um have have written about it i i gather there's often a, a humorous component as well <laughs> oh it can be uh i mean it, it it can be quite a trickster uh often the encounter experiences can be quite jovial um typically and this is a very common experience and this this is one of the questions that begs belief is is that the encounters with like little people be they elves or dwarves or gnomes or or imps they're often very tricksy they're often very carnivalesque maybe uh a bit crude and uh a bit risque and you know they could be just waving their genitals at you or transforming or whatever it is or just saying oh hi you've come back and dancing around you know so that it it often has a very kind of jovial or comical nature to it and indeed even very profound experiences uh where people may be 
um, encountering something they, they, they experience as a kind of profound, deep mystery can appear cartoon-like. Mm-hmm. And yet, in some cases, that doesn't still doesn't detract from from the profundity of the experience, even though it appeared like a cartoon. It just adds to the astonishment. Yeah. So um, I gather that uh, where you work in uh, Great Britain, it's legal for you to administer uh, DMT to research subjects. Uh, so I collaborate with uh, some colleagues at Imperial College in London, near where I work at the University of Greenwich, uh, and they have a uh, Schedule 1 license to hold and administer um, Class A drugs or Schedule 1 drugs in the States, like DMT. Um, so, yeah, that's permitted by the Home Office mm-hmm. uh, under medical supervision. I also do my own independent research, uh, which field research with people who bring their own supply and uh, that's kind of it's I mean, it's what they're doing is illegal. But what I'm not I'm doing is not I'm just there observing, doing experiments and collecting data. And it's all ethically approved. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of two pronged approach. There's a, the very expensive and, and very, very labor intensive laboratory administration of DMT. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there's the, the, the far more uh, economically easy and, and less onerous approach of, of field research, and I do both. I I see. Well, I gather that uh, in the last decade or so, there's been something of a renaissance in terms of scientific research uh, with psychedelics in general. And uh, one of the most intriguing findings that I've heard is, is that rather than the brain becoming more active uh, under the influence of psychedelics, it's almost the opposite. The brain seems to be quiet. Yeah, so this is one of the uh, findings that came out of Imperial College in London um, a few years ago, back in 2012. There had been some research in Zurich looking at brain imaging. They found very different things, in fact, but the lab in Imperial replicated their work across different uh, drugs and with with different um, imaging equipment, and they found that, surprisingly, there was a reduction of activity. There was no increase in activity overall, but there was a reduction of activity in a key region of the brain called the default mode network. Mm-hmm. Um, but that isn't the whole picture, however. Uh, so there was what we call hyperconnectivity also going on, so that there's kind of there's more intercommunication between different regions of the brain and also a state of higher brain entropy as well. So there's, there's more uh, kind of global chaotic activity than the usual local low-level activity so major shifts but one of the kind of important discoveries initially was there was no increase in activity Mm -hmm. and that was quite astonishing i think if you'd asked any neuroscientist worth their fantastic brain imaging grants to kind of guess what would happen in the human brain under the influence of psilocybin they'd have all said there'd be an increase in activity somewhere you know but that that didn't really uh, stand up there are uh, people uh, such as uh, Bernard Kastrup in the Netherlands who are arguing that uh, this uh, diminishment of brain activity under the influence of powerful psychedelics uh, would favor a um, idealist metaphysical interpretation of consciousness as as opposed to a materialist interpretation. Uh, I think... Uh... I think it well. It's been managed to be utilised by by uh, all all camps on on the 
a philosophy of mine and, and Bernardo is, is no exception to that. I mean, for him, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's good evidence uh, for his idealist uh, pers- perspective. Uh, um, I think it, it also speaks to the, the old uh, filter theory of consciousness as well. You know, if you go back to the doors of perception and Aldous Huxley, he talked about the, you know, the reducing valve of the brain and how the brain's job was really to just filter out consciousness mm-hmm. so we didn't get overwhelmed. And uh, it, it, it seems to parallel that quite nicely, at least on a poetic level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my materialist, more, more materialist kind of oriented colleagues at Imperial would interpret it in a, in a different way uh, and uh, probably say, oh, it's much more complex than that, yeah. uh, which indeed it, it is much more complex than that. But uh, it's it's uh, it's somewhat like a Rorschach inkblot ink test in that uh, those people with a with a perspective on the mind body issue can project onto it their own uh uh particular interpretation of of the findings but they they were surprising they were uh curious and and i think it is open to interpretation because it is really not well understood mm-hmm. at this point well i know you hosted a uh, conference on uh dmt and uh, the results of that were published in your book, uh, the DMT dialogues that you edited, and uh, you had over a dozen scholars there, and uh, most of them, I think, wanted to address the ontological question uh, regarding the uh, appearance of entities, and many different interpretations were offered. As as a matter of fact, uh, I suppose at this point. Uh, we're, we're not in a position to be able to resolve them, but uh, perhaps you could summarize some of the you know, more salient viewpoints. Yes, of course. I mean, there's a stando, standard kind of neurotheological perspective that is just brain perturbation and, uh, you know, neurochemical misfiring. And, you know, uh, it somehow leads to having uh, the experience of these uh, other than human beings. Um that's this kind of standard interpretation. Uh, the, there's also, if we take a more kind of literal approach, that in some sense these these beings may uh, appear as they are. You know, they are as they appear to be. That they are somehow sentient others, um, mm-hmm. or sentient appear as sentient beings in some respect. There's various interpretations that you know, stemming from the purely psychological, they're just manifestations, projections of our own psychological issues, all the way out on the other end of the scale to so these are genuine other beings, spiritual beings, aliens, mm-hmm. and then everything in between. Um, so, like you'd perhaps uh, take a more transpersonal approach and think of them as as archetypes, whatever that may be. That's not necessarily well defined. Um, some of the more uh, interesting interpretations are they are, are they could be our future selves coming back through time to communicate with us. Um, this is quite an interesting one because they're often humanoid, but not human featured. Yeah. Uh, uh, other interpretations and suggestions are they are certainly the elves uh, historically within folklore were also always considered to be associated with spirits of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some interpretations kind of riffed on that and suggested, well, maybe that's us before we incarnate in, into our human bodies. Um, which is quite curious because both aliens, you know, in the classic alien abduction kind of experiences and elves with these kind of elongated, uh, you know, large foreheads and, and the kind of almond shaped eyes 
uh, are not entirely dissimilar to the human fetus uh, or embryo uh, at kind of various stages in its development. Uh, if you ever get to go to one of these exhibitions where they'll show you kind of in jars, like the was it the Body Works exhibition, which was running around, you look at the kind of the human organism at various stages of mm -hmm. embryo fetal development there yeah. is a period of uh, one of the trimesters where it looks very much like a, an alien you know mm -hmm. uh, these kind of oversized eyeballs and forehead yeah. uh, so these are all really interesting interpretations why we should even have an experience that somehow looks like our own uh, our own embryos or fetuses is, is a curious uh, experience to have when it they seem so uh, hyper intelligent and other you know mm -hmm. uh, Dennis McKenna was at the meeting, you know, he kind of echoed some of his 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 brother's um Terence's his kind of favoured lines, you know, and how that uh, we've become so alienated from ourselves we don't even recognise ourselves when we see it. We've had to kind of make it this alien other. Uh and uh, I think the other favourite line was that uh the real truth about the nature of, of DMT entities is so astonishing that they've dis disguise themselves as a, a, an alien invasion so as not to terrify us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, the, the, yeah, we, we, we've taken a kind of multiplicity of, of possible interpretations from the very materialistic to the to the very uh, cosmic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, um, but we really don't know. Well, when you refer to these entities as sentient and even intelligent and sometimes imparting great wisdom, uh, it it suggests that even though the experience may be brief, 10 minutes or so, there, there, there can be ongoing dialogue between the experiencer and the entity. Yeah, often there is, although it's, it's not dialogue as we might ordinarily think. It's usually uh, a, a kind of just a known, like a telepathic-like communication, as you might have yeah. with your, yourself or an inner entity or mm -hmm. uh, a hyper-intelligent being. Uh, so rarely there's there's kind of direct words and and quotes given. It's just the information is imparted, uh, a deep wisdom or a kind of knowing or a, some kind of message, but not necessarily within a kind of a linguistic kind of envelope. Um, and often the beings may appear like guides or healers or or sometimes deities or or. Um, Sometimes even the, the, and often actually in, in the experiences I've, I've witnessed and looked at, they are doing operations, like they're, they're retuning people, like they go there, these beings, they're giving you a tweak, tuning mm. you up, just kind of somewhat ignoring you, but just kind of working on you. And people come out of it feeling very refreshed. And well, let me ask you one final question. Sure. Um, you are a parapsychologist, in fact, past president of the Parapsychological Association. Uh, I know you have an interest in the relationship between parapsychology and psychedelics. Uh, do we have any data regarding DMT in particular and uh, as far as augmenting uh, extrasensory abilities? Uh, so all the data we have about DMT and uh, and psi or extrasensory abilities is is somewhat in indirect. Um, so there are some uh, certainly a lot of anecdotal accounts, particularly with ayahuasca, uh, but there's not been any systematic research. And I did my own precognition experiments with ayahuasca a few years ago, 
um, which weren't successful, but uh, there was some problems with the methodology in, in that um, people under the influence of ayahuasca did did worse, uh, but also people in the control condition did worse the second time as well. So there was like problems with my methodology, not just the the ayahuasca itself. So uh, I've since um, adapted my methodology, I've updated it, I've I've learned from the the what I believe to be some of the flaws in that. I've since replicated that with uh, San Pedro cactus with very uh, good containing mescaline, very good results. Uh, LSD with uh, a number of top level scientists and one experiment. Uh, I got significant results, but actually curiously in the complete opposite direction and i'm now doing that research again with dmt in in my field research but uh currently there's no extant published research looking at uh psi inducing qualities of, of dmt but there's good reason to suspect it it might be involved perhaps in spontaneous uh, psychic experiences mm. you know if if uh, we have it in our body which we do and at certain times maybe the levels fluctuate and we have those kind of psychic intuitive moments, it's feasible that, you know, DMT could be involved in the process. Um, that's what I'm hoping to test. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that most of the people under the influence uh, aren't that interested in participating in uh, scientific controlled research studies. Uh, you'd be surprised, actually. So uh, I've been recruiting for my field research for the last couple of months. And we've been inundated with people wanting to take part in the experiments uh, with no kind of financial gain, just purely for you know, for the sake of some consciousness research and pure science. And, and it's it's very left field research, but um, we're, we're really enjoying the, the kind of the ease of recruitment. Actually, people are, are, are super interested in in taking part. Uh, sharing their experiences mm -hmm. and, and trying to learn more about it themselves. And and when they're in that state under the influence, uh, are they also uh, very cooperative? Oh, well, we don't really get them to do much when they are in that state. That would be um, a, a rather, yeah, that would be a big ask, I think. Mm -hmm. um, what we do do is we monitor their state, and when they're coming down, uh, so they're, they're still at the point where they're, they're getting a lot of visual mental imagery, mm -hmm. but they're able to kind of function and have a sense of identity again and maybe a bit of volition and intention. We then get them to do a visualization task. Um, but when they're at the peak, we just we absolutely leave them to it. We don't don't really interfere. I, I see. Well, from your description, uh, it would seem to me if I had to put it sort of into common language, it, it does suggest that. Uh, the experiencers are entering into uh, what the uh, theosophists would have called the astral plane. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think there's a the, there's probably a good map and marriage between that those descriptions. Yeah, the person's experience and, and what you might consider to be an astral plane. Um, if it is an astral plane, I don't know, but uh, it certainly seems like another world that people go to. Um, is typically usually quite devoid of, of human level kind of uh, scenery and and beings. It is often very mythological and and um, uh, high tech, space age, hyper dimensional. I mean, people talk about seeing geometries with more than three spatial dimensions and things that 
largely remain ineffable and unexplainable. So, yes, perhaps you could call it an astral plane. Um, and it may be it, that's what the theosophists were referring to. Um, perhaps they were having spontaneous DMT experiences through their practices. Mm. Or maybe they'd got hold of some DMT and we didn't know about it. <laughs> well... David, Luke, this has been a very uh, informative, uh, interesting conversation. Thank you so much for sharing with me. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be, be it, on, on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and I uh, hope that we can do some more in the future. That would be great. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you.